0: Lord, we sing those words that the promised Son and Messiah, you are Lord Jesus Christ, the desire of the nations, you are the one in whom alone men are to place their hope and to find the full satisfaction of that which we were created for, which is worship, to know you, to love you, to love those who bear your image. While now that is so poorly executed and rejected by most of the world, even poorly executed by your own people. It was perfectly revealed and executed in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, when we are in resurrected bodies and perfectly conformed to you, we will as well, without fail and without sin, fulfill the very purpose for which we were created, which was to reflect your glory, to find all of our delight in you, who is the true satisfaction and desire of our souls. And so we pray that even as we continue to take this overview of the backdrop of the gospel, of your accomplishing this grace, which is the condition of man and the other part of it, your response to those who are outside of your saving purposes, and that is your justice being upheld, your holy justice against sin. May we come to grips with these things at an even deeper level as we're reminded of them, So that our praise and our worship for salvation for those of us who have experienced would increase all the more knowing exactly what you, our Lord Jesus, accomplished for us in our redemption. And for those who are outside of you here this morning who have not yet been regenerated, who do not yet have a living hope in you, we pray that, as was prayed at the beginning of service, that today would be the day of salvation. And we offer these things in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, go ahead and open your Bibles back up, if you will, to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, we are uh, going to wrap up our look at verses 18 through 32. We began it last week in what turned out to be uh, three messages taking us to Christmas Day, which is next Sunday, and a look at the work of Christ and the redemption of His people, the fulfillment of God's promises. And in order to get there... Uh, we have to look at the backdrop against which this promise was made... and against which this promise was fulfilled. He gave us the glorious word in verse 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1... that I am not ashamed of the gospel... for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first... And also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. It was in coming to understand those words that we're well familiar with. The great reformer Martin Luther said the gates of heaven opened up to him. As he realized that that righteousness was not a matter of something that he could obtain. But laying hold of that which was accomplished for him in the purpose of Christ. And in the redemption of Christ. And that brought him into an understanding of justification by faith alone. By which he began to stand on the true rock of his salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ. And hence launched his confidence and his clarity in proclaiming the gospel. Uh, at that time. And we stand as a fruit of that, of God raising him up and rescuing this great truth of the gospel that salvation is in Christ alone. Not 99%, but 100% in what Christ accomplished. And that. We'll look at it in detail next week. But he goes immediately in giving this great word about the power of the gospel unto salvation and the righteousness of God that is known by those who have participated in this power of God in Christ and the salvation in Christ to an extended explanation of God's wrath against fallen humanity. Immediately after the righteous man shall live by faith, in this explanation of the gospel, we have the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And one of the reasons for coming to this passage, as I mentioned last week, is, is how we as Christians are to understand our place in this world, our purpose in this world, but also to understand the world around us. Why are things the way that they are? They don't make sense. They don't follow logic. They're not They're not reasonable. There's not a reasonableness that's and a truthfulness that's governing the events of our nation and of the world. How are we to process them? And that was part of the motivation for, for coming here. And how are we to understand what is unhinged in our culture and society, morally and spiritual, in light of this truth of the power of the gospel to salvation? And so that's what we're considering And we begin considering this by looking at the certainty of judgment in the beginning of verse 18 uh, last week. I'll remind you of those things and then we'll look at the causes of judgment and the consequences of judgment. And then next week we'll look at Christ who bore that judgment for us. But by way of reminder, when we come into verse 18, Paul is here now giving again the backdrop against which God brought forth his salvation which God revealed the faith, His faithfulness to His promise to redeem fallen man. What God brings to us in His own righteousness, in His own accomplishment in the purpose of Christ, stands in direct contrast to the unrighteousness and the ungodliness of the world. And so we begin by noting in verse 18 that the four then is connecting to the previous section and essentially is declaring this, is that the righteousness of God is revealed and it's re- only in this revelation of the righteousness of God in Christ and by faith in Him that man can be redeemed. But outside of that, man stands in a very different condition, namely of unrighteousness, which provokes not God's mercy, but His wrath. And so 4. For being that we, we need this righteousness in God alone because outside of it, the wrath of God is what abides on men. It is what is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we noted just briefly the character of that wrath. More could be added. It's not comprehensive, but... To understand this wrath, we noted that it is necessary. It's necessary because God, as a holy God, is infinitely pure and righteous, needs to uphold his righteousness for there to be stability and hope in this world. In other words, he will execute justice. He needs to display judgment and wrath against all that opposes him, all that opposes what is good, in order to bring order in the universe. That we noted that his wrath and its character is personal. In other words, it's not merely a mechanical system that's built into a moral universe. It's not merely, well, this happens and this must happen. That it is a personal reaction of an infinitely holy God against that which stands against him. Sin is a rejection of the relationship that God created us to be in with him. It is personal. Sin is personal. Wrath is personal. We noted that this wrath is universal. It's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is against all of God's image bearers and all of the earth at all times against those who stand against him. It is a universal wrath. And we noted, fourthly and finally, under the character of it, that it is settled, controlled, and certain. The very fact that God withholds the full expression of His wrath, which is awaiting the the end of this age, shows that it is under His control. It is completely, it is not irrational, it is not an outburst of anger. It is the settled decision of an infinitely holy and wise God, measured out and executed according to His perfect purposes. So that we noted the character of wrath, and then we noted the demonstration or the revelation of this wrath. And of course we see it throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of the history of man... We noted that it begins, one expression of it is exclusion. Exclusion from the life of God. We see that in the garden in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and the garden was protected. They were now out into this world affected with corruption. They were excluded from the presence of God in the same way. Paul mentioned this in Ephesians 4 that unbelievers are excluded from the life of God. So exclusion is one expression of this judgment. Death is another expression. In the day that you eat of it you will die. And we have not long after that of course death by murder when Cain murdered his brother Abel and then we have the genealogy and he died and he died and he died and that's been the history of man you don't have to drive very far To see graveyards and tombstones, some new, some older, that's the Lot of man because of sin. Sin entered into the world and death through sin. That's a display of judgment. Destruction is another display of his wrath. We noted the the exemplar of that in Sodom and Gomorrah when God rained fire and brimstone from heaven on this wicked uh, city of which Lot was rescued and his two daughters But destruction is one way that God works out this wrath. We noted that eschatological wrath is the end of it all. That every judgment of God is ultimately an anticipation, a foretaste of the ultimate judgment that's going to come at the end of age when he upholds his justice on all of the rebels in his kingdom. That's the book of Revelation. We noted that it's revealed as already mentioned in the gospel and that the gospel tells us that there is righteousness alone and there is escape from the wrath of God alone in the person of Christ. We noted as he said later in Romans chapter 5, he says in verse 11, or excuse me, in verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been uh, reconciled, we shall be saved By his life, saved from what? Well, he mentioned it just before that, saved from the wrath of God through him, in verse 9. And then we noted as well that one expression of this wrath and this judgment is abandonment, and that's what we'll consider more this morning. So those are the, those are, that's the character and the certainty of the judgment of God. Now let's consider the cause of this judgment. What does he give as the cause of this judgment? What provokes this response from God? From a God who would, who would rather be gracious. God does not delight in the death of a sinner. Ezekiel 18 tells us. He does not find the same delight in that. He is glorified by it. It is a part of his purpose. But he does bring judgment on the sinner... And why is that? What provokes this response from a God who would rather be gracious? Well, let's look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men... ...who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And so it is. The first reason that he gives here... For his wrath is that man's active rejection of God's witness to himself in creation. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In short, fallen, unregenerate man willfully chooses to ignore and put away the truth of God that is plain and evident all around them. Now theologians sometimes call this general revelation. And many of you have heard of that, general revelation. And general revelation it could be most aptly described in this way. That it is truth about God that is available to all people at all times in all places. It's what can be known about God by all people at all times in human history in all places on this globe. It's, it's available to all men. Usually this general revelation is divided into three categories. Three categories of witness. One is creation what can be known about God through creation? The second is conscious, and he's going to deal with that in chapter 2. In other words, that moral man is a moral being made in the image of God and understands right and wrong, and that should be related to the God who created all things. And a third category is providence, that God rules over his creation, and that is evident to men. That this God who created all things, this God who requires moral obedience from his creatures, is also the God who rules over his creation. Now there's much to be said about all of those, of course, but let me just give you one passage there. Uh, Acts 17. And you do have to turn there, I'll just read it briefly. He's, as you know, addressing philosophers and those who had all kinds of gods and he was provoked uh, Uh, Paul was in his spirit and he says in verse 24 as he's declaring to them the truth about what they hold in ignorance. He says the God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served by human hands though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. That's what should be ascertained from creation discerned from creation. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek for God. A right response to creation is that man would seek God, that they would seek the God who created all things, seek the God who gives life. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own prophets has, has said, and he goes on, In other words, the revelation of God is all around man. The revelation of God in all that he has made and all that he has done is is for the purpose that man would seek him, but instead they don't. And each of these has implications, these general witnesses of God in general revelation. That he is creator of all things is to say he is the one alone who is to be honored and worshipped. To say that he is a God in whose image we bear and that he is, requires a moral life from his people shows that he has expectations and accountability for all men. That he is sovereign over all things means that he is the God to be trusted and acknowledged. Here, however, Paul is zoning in by inspiration of the Holy Spirit on that first aspect. God as he is known in creation. So when he says here that the truth is being suppressed, the truth in unrighteousness, it is the truth about God here particularly that is known through all that he has made. And he makes that clear in verse 19 and 20. It is the truth that God made in the middle of verse 19 evident within them, evident to them. In verse 20, it is the truth that has been clearly seen and being understood through what has been made. What is this truth clearly seen? What is this truth about God and creation that is evident? What is this creation bearing witness to related to God? Well, he says it there in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. Which in short is simply to say that in the creation of the world, and again, we're looking at this broadly, it'd be nice to camp on this. Let's just say this, that in the creation of the world in a universe that is expansive and powerful and glorious beyond our wildest imagination in a world that is complex and yet containing in its complexity such beauty and harmony and wonder is all a witness to God to show that he is powerful, that he is good, that he is wise, that he is the only one who is all-powerful. And many other things. These are all truths about God that should be known that there is only one God. And he has made all of these things. And he says it has been clearly seen, even understood. The idea here is that man, humanity made in the image of God was created when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden. When he breathed into the breath of life into Adam. And then when he created Eve as a helper, equally bearing the image of God and he placed them as humanity, as mankind, in the garden, he did so in, their, in, uh, in them as image bearers in such a way that they had the capacity about, out of, outside of all of the rest of creation to perceive truths about God and all that was made and then to respond to those truths in the context of relationship. That's what it means They had the ability out of all of creation to see God, to know God, and to respond to God. To know his perfections and to delight in them. To know his goodness and to delight in it, his power and his beauty. And the right response would have been to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love every other image bearer that would come out of that original union as they love themselves. That's the right way that man was made and should live in God's creation. That's where flourishing comes from. Bearing God's image, man was made to be in relationship with him. So man has, the idea here is, has the inherent capacity, indeed even the necessity, to perceive these things rightly and respond rightly to what is known about God and everything that he has made. So it is evident within them, some translations have among them, God made it evident to them. It's clearly seen and it's being understood. And so what is man's response under the fall, though? He says they don't respond rightly. He says back at verse 18, they take this truth about God, this glorious and wonderful truth about God and man in the sin and they suppress it and they hold it down. They hold it down. They push it down. They push it back. They get it out of their minds. They cover it over. They walk away from it. They run away from it. They reject it in every way possible. There's something really interesting here I, I always find about this idea of God's revelation in creation of himself and creation. There's a lot of things to be said, but, but here's one. The, the non Christian, we've all encountered this, and maybe even before some of us, before we were in Christ, may have had this, made these kind of statements. But, you know, you go out to creation and it says there's like a spiritual experience. You know, there's, there's my spirituality when I go outside, I feel close to God. I feel close to God. And, and there's, a, there's a truth in that. Uh, but it, when a non-Christian says that, what they're actually doing is bearing witness against themselves. It's not a testimony of how enlightened they are out of humanity. It is a testimony of the depth of rebellion of the heart. What they're experiencing is a real thing to experience. Christians go out and see that, and that same creation is a a source of praise. We look at it, and we honor God, and we worship Him, and we we stand in awe of Him. The non-Christian goes out there and feels that same connection with everything that God made in one sense, but they want to reject what it's actually saying to them. And that is that there's a God who made these things who's to be worshipped. A God who has revealed Himself. So to admire the beauty and wonder of creation, to enjoy the benefits of all that God has made, while at the same time rejecting him as the giver and actively resisting the greater beauty and wonder of God himself who made them, is nothing less in God's mind than moral treason and spiritual anarchy and spiritual corruption. That's how God sees it. Enough so that it would provoke his wrath revealed from heaven. And then he makes that even clearer. How is this and why? What is the motivation behind the suppression of truth? He says in the end of verse 18 there again, in unrighteousness. He's not saying the suppression itself is unrighteous, although it is. He's saying it's in unrighteousness. That is the the well, the source, the motivation out of which this suppression takes place. It is the unrighteousness of man. It is the settled and committed desire to not live in submission to the reality of God's glory as the creator. It is the active and willful pushing down of what can be known about God and perceived in the inner man and rejecting it. It holds down the reality of his glory, his authority, his holiness, and it lives in contradiction to this self-revelation. The clarity of God's glory in creation is so strong is so strong that the proof of suppression and the failure to respond merely shows the depth of corruption and fallenness of man's heart. And it is to live at enmity with God. Let me just make mention of this briefly in Romans 8, 7. And you can just listen. Now, he's defining in Romans 8, 7, the character of those who are in Christ, who belong to Christ, and who are not. So the the regenerate and the unregenerate. So the unregenerate is described as those with a mind set on the flesh. They are are dominated by a fleshly thinking. The character of those who are in Christ, who are truly children of God, is a mind set on the spirit. They are awakened to the truth about Christ, in whom there is no condemnation. They are awakened to the reality of their own sin. Paul said, wretched man that I am. They are awakened to all the truths of Scripture and righteousness and the promises and hope. And that characterizes the general inner life and hope and reasoning and reality of a believer. But those who are in the flesh, he says in verse 7, or actually back in verse 6, he says, For the mindset of the flesh is death, the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. Now, when we think of hostility, we think of anger, vitriol, blasphemy, this open contempt for the name of God and the person of God. And we, that's what we tend to think of. And, and certainly, it obviously includes that. But it actually goes much deeper. Listen to what he says. What does this hostility toward God manifest What does it mean to be hostile toward God? What does God, from his perspective towards man, see as hostility against himself? He says this, It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So for for man to live in God's world, to enjoy the benefits of God's providence, to experience the delights of God's creation, and not give him glory, God sees not as misguided understanding, mere kind of weakness, Or an excusable kind of ignorance. He sees that as hostility. He sees that as enmity. He sees that as active rejection against who he is. Such that he is just and right then to bring consequences on man for it. So God holds this as a very important point. That he is revealed in creation but men suppress it. How do they suppress it? Again, we have to go quickly. How is it suppressed? Well, broadly, we could say it's suppressed by every way that man contrives to avoid the realities of God manifested in what he's made. Every way that man contrives or comes up with or intends or devises to hide that reality and to cover that reality over. In our current time, it's through the incessant drum of evolution that nothing produced everything. What is the idea of evolution? The core of it is this. It is to account for what has been made without a creator. Why? Because if we remove a creator, what else do we remove? A lawgiver and a judge. We remove one we're accountable to. And we become the kings of the universe. We become the determiners of right and wrong. We become the determiners of truth. We become the deciders of reality, what is and what is not. Not God. Not God. And so it's whatever we do to suppress that truth and that reality. And again, that's exactly what sin does. Sin does not come to the light. Though here specifically referring to the ministry of Christ. But the principle holds true in both cases. Because the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For their deeds were evil. In fact... It is the rejection of this light of God in the sense of the revelation of himself that shows his justice, justness in bringing about wrath. And so he says that at the end of verse 20. We're going to move. So that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. And just as a footnote here, that includes the pygmy in Africa and someone in North Korea who has never heard the gospel. They're equally without excuse. They're equally without excuse. Why? Why? Because creation declares something that they should know and respond to and us as well. So they are without excuse at that level of rejecting the witness of God that has been made known to them. This means that when giving account to God for not rightly responding to the revelation of His glory and what He has made, the unregenerate and unbelieving will be silent with the obvious weight of guilt that they bear. And although the judgment will be measured Against the amount of light received, it will be judgment. So, one is that they actively resist man in his fallenness, the truth about God. Uh, next, let's just notice briefly that there's a refusal then in this rejection to live under his glory. There's a refusal to live under his glory. There's a rejection of what can be known. And he says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They rejected this knowledge and refused to live under his glory. They refused to acknowledge it, refused to acknowledge that he is infinitely worthy, refused to acknowledge that he is the rightful owner of all things. They refuse it, and they refuse to give him the glory as the creator of the universe or to be thankful. And that really is piercing, isn't it? And that goes together, of course, because a part of gratitude is to give glory to God. If we're thankful to God, we acknowledge all things come from Him. And therefore, to be thankful to God is to give glory to God as the source of all good things, as the one who is the giver of all bountiful blessings that man enjoys in creation. But if God is not acknowledged, then there is no glory to Him. And the fruit of that is that men are not thankful. They're not thankful. That shows... The deep and profound reality of an attitude of thankfulness or of gratitude. You would think almost with such weighty things that there would be something else that was said. But God says, here, I can tell you what shows the depth of man's heart. They're not thankful. I give them gifts and they scorn me. I provide for them and they don't acknowledge it. So giving glory to God and thanks to God actually goes far deeper than just saying thanks before a meal or praying before a meal or acknowledging God for some benefit. It's not less than this, but it's far more than this, which will be unfolded as he goes on. To glorify God from a grateful heart is also to direct the heart to Him. And it means that if we're thankful for God's gifts, it's not merely acknowledging God's gift and say, God was so good to give this, now I'm going to live like I want. Gratitude has inherent in that idea with also glorifying God, living consistent with His purposes in creation. Do you see? So a lack of gratitude has to do with the rejection of His very purpose for us in creating us. And to have gratitude goes far beyond merely saying thank you and then living like we want. It is to acknowledge our gratitude to this God and then to give ourselves to Him to live consistent with His purposes. It includes the idea of obedience. It's a, it includes the idea of using His gifts according to their purpose. For example, a lack of gratitude or giving glory to God comes from a heart of pride and self-sufficiency and leads to these kind of things, selfishness and oppression. If God gave good gifts to be used to the service of other people, to be used for the flourishing of mankind... When there is no gratitude to God, when there is no reference to his glory, then those gifts become a means of merely accomplishing our own self-willed purposes. To act selfishly with them. To acquire for ourselves more wealth or power to the, without regard to the effect that it has on other people. Oppression of others. Manipulation of others. Abuse of others. That all comes out of an unthankful heart. An ungrateful heart that doesn't see these things as gifts from God to be used consistent with his purposes in them, but takes these things selfishly, hoards them, abuses them, and abuses others, and abuses the purpose for which God gave them all. God did not ultimately give man an intellect and the ability to manipulate creation in order to blow things up and destroy. But to build up and to flourish. It's man's sin that corrupts the purposes of what God has made. Because they are not thankful. They do not see God as the giver of them. Therefore they're not thankful to him for giving them. And therefore they have nothing inside of them that compels them to use them for their right purposes and end. Which is his glory. But it gets even worse than that. He says this in verse Twenty-two, of course, or into verse twenty-one, their foolish heart was darkened, their futile, and their speculations meaningless. And professing to be wise, they become fools in verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of God for the incorruptible God, or for the for the in for of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. Not only it was a rejection of God holding down the truth about him, not only did it show in not giving him glory and being unthankful and misusing his gifts, it is then replacing that truth about God and using the very creation which was meant to point to him to point to the creation itself and worship the creation rather than the creator. That's the very essence of sin in Genesis 3, isn't it? There was an exchange of confidence in God's character replaced with doubt about his goodness. There was an exchange in trust of God's word as the right source of truth and replaced with a contrary source of truth, the serpent. There was an exchange of trust in God's provision and promises, and it was replaced with the establishment of an autonomous reason and self-will to step outside of what God had given. Isn't that the heart of all sin? Here he lists three things that they exchanged, that man in their sin exchanges in place of God. One in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creatures. In other words, all of these things God created, they exchanged his glory that's inherent in them to make something else to worship. Using trees to make idols, stones and rocks and worshiping them. We see this in pantheism, sometimes Native Americans or others, you know, worshiping creation, the gods of all the different gods. Not them alone, there's other examples. As how spiritual that people were, but, but that's not spirituality. It's hostility and rebellion. To deify any of these things or to use them to create gods in our own making is rebellion. And it's even worse. It's even worse by those who not only should know better by being made in the image of God, but by actually having received particular benefits of God and knowledge of God. Listen to what he says even to his own people in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which is not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this and shudder and be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. And here it is. Here's the very heart of it. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns broken cisterns which can hold no water. It's a double slap in the face of God, as it were. It's not only a rejection of what He has given, but in that rejection of what He has given, it's to use those gifts that were for His glory and the good of others, and to instead replace Him with them, find joy in them. Rejecting Him who is the fountain of all goodness. Psalm 106 verse 20 says this, speaking of Israel again, they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. That's how stupid sin makes us. That's how stupid sin makes us. They exchanged the glory of God. Man here exchanges the glory of God revealed in creation for creation itself. And they make things in the likeness of man instead of giving glory to God. What else did they do? They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Verse 25. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Exchanged the glory of God, made another image. They say a truth of God. These are distinct but related. And again... This is the garden. God knows in the day you eat of it, you will be like God. There's the lie. And so they exchanged what God had revealed, the truth he had revealed, and replaced it with something else. They succumbed to autonomous reason, self will. She trusted in herself, and man does that as well. We don't need God, we have it within our own selves to be successful. And powerful. So the lie is essentially this, that God has revealed himself in creation. that The God who has revealed himself in creation is not the one supreme being who is to be loved, served, and obeyed, worshipped by all his creatures. He can be dismissed. That's the lie. There's nothing else outside of us that regulates our existence and our reality. And so therefore we can march out on our own. It's the lie that the knowledge of God is a matter of our own interpretation, our own ideas that can be, and he can be dismissed altogether with the, without consequence. That we are the ones who are the ultimate determiners and the shapers of our own life and what is right and wrong. That's the lie, essentially. That God is not important or he is non-existent. That's the lie. And so we can create whatever we want from that. And what are the consequences of this judgment? What are the consequences? Well, look at verse 24. God gave them over. God gave them over. He reads this three times. God lets a nation, a people, and in some cases individuals, to have their own way. What is the judgment? Here is the judgment of abandonment. He removes moral restraint. He abandons men to their sin. That's the judgment. And Paul gives three descriptions of this abandonment. First is unrestrained lust, particularly sexual lust. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. They exchanged God's gift of sexuality and made it something perverted. But the point here is namely this, that rather than hindering their lust. A part of judgment is to give men to the full pursuit of them. That's judgment. It's not unique to Romans. Listen to just a few other examples. Psalm 81. You can just write these down. Psalm 81, verse 11 to 12. Again, speaking of his people who rejected him. He says, My people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So what did God do? He says, I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk on their own devices. That's what he did. In Ephesians chapter 4, when man through their own ignorance and hardness of heart has rejected God, what does he do? Ephesians 4, he says, Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance within them, because of the hardness of the heart, they have becoming callous. They have given themselves over, and God has allowed them to do that to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So God giving himself, uh, people over is allowing them to give themselves completely unrestrained to their sin, to those evil impulses within the heart. To do those things which are not proper and to do those things which are evil. To do those things which are ultimately even self destructive. That's a judgment of God. So, fallen man views this as freedom. They view this as the okay, freedom is I can do whatever I want and no consequences. No consequences. It doesn't matter. I want to sleep with someone who's my same sex. I want to take that out in a variety of ways that it is in our culture. It's fine. It's fine because there's no God to judge me and there's no God who's to, to tell me what my sexuality is used for. But here he says something very interesting. He goes to homosexuality. Why homosexuality? Because any expression of sexuality outside of the covenant of marriage is sin. Why does he go to homosexuality and focus on that? Because of the extent at which that displays the rebellion against God's purposes. And look what he says. He says, It's degrading passions, and women exchange the natural functions for that which is unnatural. Verse 27. Men abandon the natural function. Literally, it is against nature. For that which is against nature. And the very act itself is a testimony against itself. Let me give you at least three reasons. One, as he's saying here, is because... It is against our greater purpose. Well, in other words here, of why this is such a display of rebellion. Because it's against our greater purpose. It causes ministry and it's going to increase suffering. It's only going to increase suffering. I'm in verse 24 now. I'm backing up. I got ahead of myself. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts and that is enslavement because it goes exactly against the very nature of humanity and the created purpose to love God and neighbor. And because of that, it's going to create only misery and dishonor among them. It has consequences and future suffering. And the result is that the body will be dishonored, verse 24. Their bodies would be dishonored among them. The body was given to reflect the image of God and to shine forth the glory of God. They are created as instruments to display His glory and to participate in His goodness and to fulfill His will in creation. We have inherent dignity as human beings because we bear the image of God. There is an honor to being a human being. There is an honor to our bodies that's inherent because we have this great privilege of bearing His image sin destroys and corrupts this i always think of a particular example in my life Uh, so i was a believer at this point and walking down venice boulevard and i remember is stuck in my head i remember seeing this older lady and she was dressed with an attempt to be seductive and she was kind of on this platform dancing or whatever and that made my heart so sad And it made my heart so sad because I had this distinct thought. She was created with a human dignity. And here she is, this pathetic figure. Sad figure. But what made it so sad is that her body and her life was created for dignity. She bears the image of God. She bears the image of God and this is how it's being used. This sad, sad portrait. That's the idea here. Our bodies are dishonored in so many ways. At the heart of it is, though, is that our bodies were made to reflect glory and we use them in ways that are dishonorable. We see it in our current celebration of drag queens, men dressing as women, dancing seductively before an audience. That's a dishonoring of the body. The male body wasn't made for that. It's a degradation of who you are as a human being. Transgenderism. Abortion, the body made to harbor life, to create life and to bring it forth, is dishonored when it's submitted to a procedure that will kill that life and take it out. It's dishonor to the body before God. And there's a thousand ways in which we debase the body. One, he moves in next, then, a way that he gives over is in sexual deviance. Sexual deviance. I introduced it, but let me come back to it. Sexual deviance and homosexuality. And note there's a progression in the argument here. There's a rejection of God as creator. There's turning toward the creation to replace the creator with idolatrous worship. And then uh, there's a a rebellion against the very design of created order. And this is what I introduced before coming back. It's against nature. It's unnatural. It's against the natural function. And let me give you at least three ways that it is, homosexuality is a witness against itself. One, and these are so basic, and the, the, the simplicity of them shows the level of darkness that we live under in the corruption of sin. One is this. Because it goes against the basic design of human anatomy. It goes against the basic design of human anatomy. Merely looking at an anatomy book would say that these bodies were made for functions that require each other. To distort that goes against nature because it goes against the very design of our physical bodies, our human bodies. The very division of all of humanity is into male and female. Number two, because it cannot produce children. It cannot produce children. It's a sexual function that can't bring about the intended result of sexuality, which isn't mere pleasure. It's also to bring forth children into the world. It's to create a family. As a matter of fact, and in my mind, I'm sure this has maybe been said at other places, but the fact that homosexual couples want children is a testimony against the unnatural union that they're involved in. Because to want children is actually a very good thing. It's a very natural thing. It's an impulse that God has put into the heart of those who are in relationship, bound by covenant, although they're not really, But the idea is that they want to have a family, and they want children, but their union can't produce that children, which for any rational person says, well, is there something wrong with this union then? At least from God's perspective. Number three, it goes against the basic design of human anatomy. It can't produce children, and then it destroys the family. Number three, it contains within itself physical harm, and that's what he says: receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Our media tries to cover it up, and yes, it does spill over into people, into other, into other uh, people who innocent children sometimes, AIDS and other kind of things. But a lot of the things that are presented, even AIDS would be one. There's many others. As just sort of a general thing afflicting humanity finds its greatest presence within the homosexual community. That's not often brought up. Why is it? Because then if that was, then it would be a testimony against that community and the lifestyle and what's going on. But that's part of again of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But God has created humanity to function in a certain way. And so he says, when you reject. God is creator then you reject his purposes and here it is homosexuality transgenderism and the last note on this takes it to an entirely different level it's gone past Romans uh, 1.26 Romans 1.26 says I want to use my sexuality in a way that's obviously a rejection of its intended purpose transgenderism says I don't even I reject the idea of nature at all I even reject I I even reject the categories of male and female I create what I want. Well, thirdly, let's get to move on. His depraved mind, what else does he give over to? He gives over to the lust. He gives over to degrading passions. And he gives over in verse 28 to a depraved mind. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. A depraved mind is essentially this, a mind that no longer functions properly. Not in the sense of intellect. Not in the sense of intellect. So, we can have a depraved mind and be a brilliant scientist. Or, or creator of literature and art and whatever else. That's not the point. To have a depraved mind is to have a mind that is so spiritually corrupt that it can't function rightly in responding to the reality of the environment it exists in. Related to God. It doesn't have that ability. A natural man cannot accept or understand the things of God. They have no way to process it. They're not able to do so. And one way in which that reaches a, a, its fullest expression is when there is such a consistent rejection that there is a point where God simply gives over to that depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Which are not proper. What does this look like in a culture and in a nation? What does it look like when God gives a people over to this extent in a nation? What are are the ways that the sin manifests itself? Now before I mention this, it's not to say that each of these is practiced by every individual nor manifests to the same degree. When, When sometimes you hear the word total depravity, it doesn't mean that each person is to the fullest extent given over to the evil impulses of their heart. It simply means that we are whole persons, mind, affections, and will. And that in the totality of our person, everything is corrupted by sin so that there's nothing good that can be done or rightly understood outside of God's sovereign work of creating a new person, a new creature in regeneration. It is to say every part of us, it is why Jesus could say, you being evil can do good to your children. Yeah, you can do a good thing. But it doesn't change your constitution of evil so that one old theologian said, we can do good but, uh, as an, un, an unregenerate, but it's bad good. It's bad good. It's good according to a human assessment, but it's still cr- infected with the corruption of sin because it's not done to the glory of God. It's not done out of faith in God. It's not done to the end that Christ alone would be glorified in the revelation of God. It's not done out of humility, but ultimately... Out of pride. So, what does that look like in a nation? What are the general characteristics of a society given over in attitude and actions? Well, and this is where it's important for us to think as Christians before I go to this list. But especially when it comes to things like politics, so often we put too much weight on political solutions to address the sins and the moral wickedness of society. But before I read this list, if we understand, and if we're thinking, if we find ourselves saying, I can't believe they're doing this, or why would they do this, isn't it obvious? It's to say we're not thinking Christianly. We can be upset by those things, discouraged by them, but we understand them. Because God gives a nation over, and you don't think rightly. Of course there's going to be things that are illogical and irrational and openly wicked that don't make any sense. Of course there is. And he says in Second Thessalonians, just a brief reminder here. You're familiar. He says this. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Sounds like Romans 1, doesn't it? Given over. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Look at verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. What is that? Having been filled with... Having been filled with what? All unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil... Full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice and gossips, filled with all manner of sin. To be unrighteous means a culture that lives contrary to what is right, what is good, what conforms to goodness and truth. Greedy, also manifested in discontent, ruthlessness, immorality, manipulation to achieve what a person wants. Evil, morally corrupt, lacking moral beauty. Envy, jealous, a part of covetousness and greed. Murderous, actual murder, as well as murderous hearts. One that promotes violence, hatred, animosity, bitterness. as a good thing. Strife has the idea of conflict and hostility towards those who have a different opinion or a contrary position. Deceit, malice and maliciousness. One described that as an evil disposition leading one to habitually engage in malicious acts. Gossips, also sometimes referred to as a talebearer, Loving to delight with other people and the misfortune of others or to put others down secretly to exalt self. Slanderers has the idea of speaking against someone with evil intent and maliciousness. Haters of God. Not the idea of God in man's own image and imagination, but God as He is. In other words, haters of God doesn't mean irreligious or not religious. It means hater of God who has revealed Himself in creation and conscience and so forth. The true God. Insolent. thats the attitude that commits acts of violence or insult with a sense of superiority and arrogance. My, do we see that on the news sometimes. Somebody that's walking down the street in New York and just takes a bat and hits somebody out of nowhere and laughs, pushes them in the subway line. That's the kind of thing. Arrogance, haughtiness that commits acts of violence, insolent, arrogant, haughty, he says next, a sense of self-importance that looks down on or despises others, elitism. Boastful, essentially a braggart who acts and speaks in a way to promote self. A braggart. Inventors of evil. Those who, who give intellectual, who, who are those who give intellectual attention and time to devise morally evil things, they anticipate the evil, they think about the evil, and then they commit the evil. They meditate on the evil, and they do it. Disobedient to parents. Essentially, this is an attitude and a a culture in in which respect of a parental authority or the sense of reverence and fear to those in authority is dismissed and diminished. Those who are teachers understand this in the classroom. Why is it hard to be a teacher? Because there's no authority. There's no sense of fear of the consequence of wrongdoing. parents, who experience children who are defined by a sense of entitlement, a lack of gratitude shown in a lack of service and a lack of humility. I mean, the very idea of what's being promoted and accepted in this sexual revolution and transgenderism is the idea that parents are are fools and misguided and backwards, and so the kids need to step out on their own authority and take hold of their own future. And you have an entire educational system and political system that supports that idea. Disobedient to parents. No sense of authority or reverence. No sanctity of the home and the purpose of the home to raise up a next generation. That's one. without understanding the inability to think clearly and rightly about moral matters untrustworthy, a lack of integrity and responsibility to follow through with a task or a promise or responsibility. It's another form of selfishness. Eh, I'm just going to end up doing what I want to do anyway. Unloving or heartless. One lexicon defining that in this way, pertaining to a lack of love or affection for close associates or family. No sense of affection or close association and emotional binding to those who are dear to us and close to us. Unloving and unmerciful. Unmerciful, not showing mercy because there is no care or concern for the weak or the downtrodden. An unmerciful society. An unmerciful society, again, would be one that kills innocent children in the room and says that they can be found in a dumpster a few days after birth and no investigation will come. Unmerciful. Unmerciful. It's unmerciful to say that someone struggling with discouragement rather than helping them to persevere in difficulties that says we want to sanction their self death and help them in it it's unmerciful it's dishonoring the body That's not the point of the gift of life and humanity and there's one sense in which God brings all these things together in his abandonment And when he promotes the inherent self-destructiveness of sin in allowing the institutions that he has given for flourishing and the protection of society to be utterly demolished and ruined themselves. Such as civil authority, when it no longer is functioning to promote what is good, but actually functioning to resist what is good and promote what is evil. Then it's a society given over. When the family is destroyed, when the very units that God has created for a society to bring children into the world, to demonstrate and change to those children and teach those children about faithfulness, integrity, commitment, that's destroyed, then that is when a society has been given over. That's why political systems that want totalitarian authority, one of their main objectives is to destroy the family. Destroy the family. That's Marxism and other things. And so, and then the church. And then the church. There is conscience that's restrained too, and that certainly is is destroyed when all of these things are given free reign, the lust of men's heart. But even the church itself, interestingly... When God has given over a society, and even those who are naming his name, this is things that are displayed even in the apostate church at the end of the age. Let me just make one mention of this, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, welcome to the internet, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. In other words, he's talking about those who are making some claim to religion, some claim, in this context, even to Christianity. And he says, those are going to look just like the world. Just like the list in Romans chapter 1. And judgment is going to come upon them as well. We've certainly seen that in Revelation, in Christ's messages to the churches. But when each of those God gives a nation over, each of those very things that are mercies of God, for the good of a society, those begin to be destroyed. Civil authority becomes corrupt, openly so, and powerful and oppressive rather than protective. The family is destroyed and is replaced with a new authority that only is meant to manipulate and to control. The church becomes corrupt like the culture around the professing church. And these things are all part of the demise of a culture. And the protection of the children is gone. Faithfulness is a thing of the past. Marriage is just a relic of old traditions. And so, this is the situation. And he even is going to address that. We won't get there, but even to the nation of Israel, who should have known better, verse 32, although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And he's going to build on that later. Well, the point of this message was this, besides leading us to the redemption provided in Christ next week. But the point really of this is how do we think about the world around us? How do we start processing what's going on on our television sets? How do we start processing the culture as we realize we are a nation under judgment? We are a nation that has been given over to sin. We are a nation that has received many mercies of God. Even at the very beginning, we had the first great awakening calling the nation back. We had the second awakening we had other movements move forward forth and eventually each one got less had less and less spiritual integrity in terms of its faithfulness to the word of god and yet those were mercies but eventually it's a rejection a rejection a rejection and rejection and god says okay it's yours you go and you have it but remember this in verse 4 He says O oh man when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you do you think you'll escape the judgment of God do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds So true freedom is not found in the absence of any kind of moral restraint and and transcendent law that we are accountable to or the worship of God. True freedom is not found in sin, but is found in righteousness. And this freedom is restored only in Christ. Only in Christ, in which true freedom is found. And what is the freedom that's found in Him? The freedom to love God. The freedom to worship. The freedom to walk righteously. Righteously. The freedom to love your neighbor as yourself. The freedom to count precious the gifts of God in family and children and uphold those things that are beautiful and right for the glory of God. That's freedom. That's freedom. And it's restored in Christ and in Christ alone. And that we'll consider next week. So what is the one mission of the church Well, it's not to go into a nation that God has given over and to say, let's make some more laws. The mission as a citizen, we have a certain role in that, yes. But as the church and as the redeemed of God, our mission is in every sphere of influence that God has put us to preach the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, by the word of God. That's the mission of the church. To present Christ as the Savior of man's sin. To present Christ as our only hope in which we can be reconciled to God. That's our one mission. That's our one message. And may God help us to be faithful as as it comes with a greater and greater cost to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you've not left us on our own. We who know You for these things, but You have given us Your Spirit, Your glorious Spirit, to reveal to us Your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, to love Your Word and to find an inner resource of strength by a faith upheld by You, even as the world slips deeper and deeper into darkness, that we might grow brighter and brighter in our light. Help us to be courageous and not timid, even as You... Reminded us through Paul's message to Timothy, for you have not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love, of courage, of truth. And so help us to to realize and be focused on our mission, which is to be witnesses to Christ, to be lovers of those around us, to pray for our nation and for one another. And to place our hope completely, not in anything man can bring, but in what you've accomplished for us in the promise of your coming kingdom in the Lord Jesus Christ, which we especially celebrate this season. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And we pray all of these things in the name of one who died for us, who rose for us, who intercedes for us right now, and is returning for us. the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.